Welcome to Morning Report Top Stories, a selection of news from RNZ's morning news programme. Hector Sharp was born in Wellington but now works for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees. He joins us now from Rafa. Hi Hector. Good morning. Okay, you're only a couple of kilometres away from Khan Yunus, aren't you? Are you seeing or or, or encountering any of this, uh, I guess, uh, new ground invasion that we're hearing reports about? Uh, Yes, yes, we are. Um, I mean, you can see it, you can hear it, certainly hear it. And we have staff uh, executing our mandate, humanitarian mandate across the Gaza Strip, and we have reports uh, from from them of of uh, uh, IDF activity, so we we know that the that that it's happening in the south, um, and it's very very much present um, at all times. Are you able to do your carry out your mandate, deliver aid, given what is going on now? So we're two days into the new um, new phase of this war, and it, it's yet to be seen how effectively we can carry out our mandate in the first twenty four hours. Uh, activities were largely uh, halted um, because of because of danger to movement, and now we're, we're we're establishing back into the rhythm of the conflict. And and I'm sure that the UN will continue to execute its mandate um, and conduct the activities that we need to to serve the populations. We know that hundreds of thousands of Palestinians have been displaced and have moved south. What are the conditions like where you are at the moment? How many people are there? Do people have anywhere to stay? What is the, the, the sense? It, well, in Rafa, we have close to half a million uh, displaced persons sheltering um, in UN shelters alone. Uh, that's not to mention the existing community that was here before, plus people sheltering in non-UN shelters. So that's an incredible amount of people in a small small area of, of land. And, and now we have uh, an influx, certainly today, an influx coming from Khan Yunus uh, that have been uh, ordered to evacuate. So... We're tracking the evacuation orders and, and seeing seeing uh, the result of that uh, t- tonight. Um, and it's certainly getting a lot more crowded. I mean, the, the population density has gone gone over 20,000 uh, per square kilometre. So we're entering into uh, overcrowded and, and uh, certainly the UN shelters are full. Overfull. And there's nowhere to go now from where, from Rafa, is there? Because the border with Egypt is still closed. So this is sort of the, the, the end point in terms of where people are going to come to. They can't go any further. Yeah, there, there's nowhere else to go. I mean, the, there's the, there's simply nowhere to go. There, there was an evacuation order this morning from Khan Yunus telling people to go to an area where they had been told to evacuate from yesterday. So there's also a lot of confusion uh, in, in the population. And and, uh, you know, we've been told that there's a new grid system by which people can uh, know which areas are safe. But, uh, you know, people are not chess pieces. They cannot be moved around a battlefield. This is, uh, this is a conflict like no other. Uh, you know, Sudan has, has a movement of millions of people, but it's a massive country where people can move out of the way of the fighting. They cannot move out of the way of the fighting here. The fighting has followed them from the north to the south where they were told it was safe. There is no self safe place in Gaza, and that's the clear message the UN's been giving for for since really week two of this conflict. Hector, can I ask what is life like for you? I mean, how easy is it to function at the moment in Rafa to get food, to move around, to communicate? I mean, you can talk to us, which is great. What is life like? Everything is is more challenging than than life was previously. I mean, life in Gaza Strip under 15 years of blockade wasn't easy. 
uh, even for for international humanitarian workers but but now it's it's more challenging getting food um is obviously an issue when we the un are bringing in a lot of food um and we're able to to obviously feed our staff and 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 keep the operations going uh, for example i've i've come up to the office now to talk to you so that i can be on a good wi-fi um but but you know that there's there's a central location where we're able to access those services. In terms of moving around, we have a, a notification system to ensure that our staff movements are safe, but but I certainly wouldn't call call it free, free movement or, or easy. We're operating in a very hot, hot uh, conflict zone. And when you talk to Palestinian people who have moved, been displaced or moved, uh, in the wake of that ceasefire, when there, was there a flicker of hope? What are you sensing when you talk to them now? Yes, and that, that's that's the most heartbreaking question that I was asked during the uh, seven days of ceasefire. Is 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 this it? Is is are we going to go back to Gaza? Are we going to go back to our lives? And and uh, you know, the answer is I, I, I we don't know. I mean, we, the UN is is not a party to the conflict. We are here uh, to serve the population with humanitarian needs we're not playing a role so we don't make these decisions and it's not our mandate to try and solve this 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 conflict so to tell people that uh you don't know um and obviously where we are now it's it's come true that that it wasn't the end and it, it is devastating to people i think there was a flicker of hope absolutely people people dared to hope and that hope has been crushed in the last 48 hours was there a sense that you got a lot of uh, aid through in that time? Has there been uh, a, n- a number of aid uh, deliveries? Have you got? Have you resupplied? No, we we didn't get enough of a chance to resupply. We, we when the when the ceasefire came, we we did our best to bring as many trucks in as possible, um, and that uh, was made possible by the by the parties to the conflict agreeing on a on a on a temporary pause, and and we brought in as much as we could, but it it really didn't scratch the surface that the needs. The needs are, are, are huge. It's um, it's an import-dependent economy here, and uh, having been starved of resources for the previous two months, this week was was not enough to get where we needed to go in terms of resupplying the population with food and water. Hector, uh, thank you very much for talking to us again. That is Hector Sharp, uh, born in Wellington, now working for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine refugees. He is based in Rafa, which is on the border with Egypt, about, yeah, from what I can read of the map, a couple of kilometres from Khan Yunus. Well, the UN's International Climate Summit is underway in Dubai. Overnight, negotiators at the COP28 Climate Summit discussed the dire effect global heating has on public health, how extreme weather is disrupting the supply of water and food, and how climate change is helping diseases to spread. It is the first time public health has been on the formal agenda at one of the climate conferences. The Director General of the World Health Organization spoke to delegates in Dubai. Undoubtedly, health stands as the most compelling reason for taking climate action. The threats to health resulting from climate change are immediate and present. However, for too long, health has been a footnote climate discussion. No more.
It is three days into the nearly two-week conference. Uh, so far, New Zealand has signed up to one international agreement to adapt agriculture and food production to the changing climate. 133 other countries have also signed that declaration. Uh, we haven't yet signed up to the agreement to treble uh, renewable energy use by 2030, which 100 country, other countries have signed. Cabinet is yet to discuss that pledge. Climate Change Minister Simon Watts leaves for Dubai later this week. But Greens co-leader James Shaw is already there as part of the New Zealand delegation. He says New Zealand can still sign up to the Renewable Energy Pledge at a later date. There's almost 200 New Zealanders who are at uh, this event, many of whom are from the energy sector. I mean, I think they, they were kind of hoping that we would sign up to that. I suspect, and you know, it's only been kind of a, a week since the change of government, um, that that possibly it was just one of those things that, you know, didn't kind of make it through the system in time. Um, we can actually sign up at any time, and there have been other cases in the past where uh, we didn't necessarily sign up on the day, but we we did come to it later. Okay, um, this, was a, mean, this is yeah. a tripling of the uh, capacity for renewable energy. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, you know, we know that that is one of the things that has to happen, right? If, if we're going to uh, get away from fossil fuels in our transport and in our industry and so on, um, that means that we at the same time need to dramatically increase the amount of renewable electricity that we generate in order to, you know, power all those electric vehicles and um, switch over all of those coal-fired boilers over to electric and, and so on. Um, and, and so it is, it is you know, re- really important. It is good to see that the world is moving on this and I, I know that New Zealand industry is uh, working pretty hard on this. Okay, listeners with an ear for detail will note that we're speaking to you, James Shaw, the Green Party co-leader and not Mm. our climate change minister. Is um, Simon Watt there? Not yet. Uh, He will be here, I I think he gets in on the 8th of December, um, so a a sort of few days from now. That is, it is kind of standard practice that the Minister of Climate Change comes for the second week of the negotiations. So during the first week, uh, it's generally handled by officials, but there is a point where it needs the kind of political leadership to kind of show up and, you know, make a deal, essentially. Um, And and that's why the Minister tends to come for the second week. Just finally, I mean, what, what is your overall all um, sort of takeaway from this COP? Well, it's really early days, um, but there's bad news and good news, as there always is. I have to say that the news from day one, when uh, they managed to complete the negotiations on what's known as the loss and damage fund, um, that is the, the fund that supports uh, the um, most vulnerable countries in the world um, from, you know, some of those storms and droughts and floods and fires and so on that we're experiencing. Um, That was a major breakthrough, and and the fact that the UAE and Germany put $200 million down to get that fund up and running um, has created an enormous amount of goodwill. That will flow through to the rest of the negotiations. At the same time, you can see the fossil fuel industry is fighting very hard uh, to kind of slow down any uh, language that might talk about the phasing out of, of that industry in coming decades. But we all know that that is the thing that has to happen uh, most urgently if we're going to uh, stop the climate crisis from getting any worse. And sorry, I did say just finally, but from here, what are the next <laughs> big big items on the agenda? Well, uh, the, 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 I mean, this is all kind of an obtuse United Nations 
speak, right? So th- there's something called the global stock take, which is uh, essentially the first time since the Paris Agreement when there has been a stock take uh, of progress um, against all of the commitments that countries have made. Um, and, you know, you would think that that would simply be a report card. You know, you hand your homework in. Um, but, of course, uh, you know, there have been a lot of countries that um, have dragged the chain the last few years. And, mm. and so that's become a very political negotiation as well. And I think you'll see some heat around that over the coming days. That was our Green Party co-leader James Shaw speaking to us from the COP28 summit. Well, on the sidelines of those talks in Dubai, activist groups have just awarded New Zealand the ignominious Fossil of the Day Award. It is the first time the Dud Prize has been given out at this round of the talks and the third year in a row that New Zealand has received it. We're joined now from Dubai by New Zealand Climate Action Network delegate and Forest and Bird Hauraki Gulf campaigner Bianca Ranson of Ngāpuhi Ngāti Kahuki Whaingaora. Kia ora, good morning. Welcome to the program. Kia ora, kia ora. What has New Zealand done to be awarded this title? So today New Zealand was awarded the infamous Fossil of the Day Award uh, for the U-turn that they've made in the for the ban of oil and gas exploration uh, here in, uh, in Aotearoa. Uh, So that has been seen as uh, deeply concerning and disappointing because when the ban was put in place for oil and gas exploration, it was really seen as world leading and um, something that we could be incredibly proud about as a nation. And so um, just in that previous story, as James just mentioned, phasing out fossil fuels globally is one of the most important things that needs to happen. And so for our government to be backtracking on that now um, is, yeah, drawing a lot of criticism from uh, from countries that are that are over here at um, in Dubai at COP28, and particularly from our Pacific um, neighbours as well. So I know we'd we'd heard from the leadership of Palau about this as well, but in terms of this award, um, who who has a say on that? Where does that? Who votes on that? So the uh, the Fossil of the Day Award is part of the Climate Action uh, Network, which is 1,900 civil society organisations from 130 different countries around the world. And so there's a process uh, in order to um, be nominated, and then there's a voting process that happens as well during the same day, and those um, votes are counted. And uh, so people from all of those different countries uh, have the ability to vote on who they think should um, be the winner. Mm. And so it's pretty significant that we won today because in second place was uh, Japan, followed in third place by uh, the USA. Yeah, we have won it a number of times, haven't we? Just finally, uh, this year's president saying there's no science that a phase out of fossil fuels is needed to restrict uh, global warming to 1.5 degrees. they would have been a top nominee, wouldn't they? <laughs> yeah, that that news actually came out. I think I read that news just after we had been announced uh, the winner, but I'm sure that there are going to be many winners of uh, Fossil of the Day as we have heard that news that um, came out um, this afternoon. But it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that the main thing here is that it's pretty naive and uninformed of the new minister 
of climate change to say that, uh, you know, he's not expecting any criticism when he comes over here to COP28 with this decision. Thank you very much. We appreciate your time this morning. That is Bianca Ranson. Uh, She is with the New Zealand Climate Action Network over there in Dubai. A group of Northland emergency doctors have written to the health minister urging him to keep the smoke-free 2025 legislation intact. The new government wants to keep the number of stores selling cigarettes at 6,000 instead of dropping that back to 600, keep nicotine levels as they are and allow for those born after 2009 to buy tobacco. The doctors say the plan is pro-lung cancer and will make people sicker, leading to far higher health costs. I spoke with Northland emergency medicine doctor and letter signatory Gary Payinda a short time ago and he told me that to throw away anti-cancer legislation for a short-term tax revenue gain uh, doesn't make any sense. I've signed this letter because I was really um, disappointed at the impending um, uh, repeal of the smoke-free legislation. And uh, it was nice to see that other doctors out there, colleagues, felt the same way. So um, often, you know, you might get disappointed by a policy, but then you learn that 18 others of your peers, people you respect, also have serious um, problems with the the repeal of the smoke-free legislation. And, and you start to realize that it's not just you, it's a lot of healthcare professionals. It's, it's almost all of the doctors I've spoken to really view the repeal of smoke-free legislation as a really bad idea, bad financially, bad for patients' health, um, something that'll lead to something like 8,000 increased deaths over the next 17 years and a $1.3 billion in increased health expenses. And, and we just, we're all on the same page with this. So for the idea for like that, that 18 doctors would all agree on the same thing and all sign up to this open letter within, I think, a day and a half of, of Dr. Eugene Fairberg writing the, the letter up um, is pretty impressive. And uh, is we're this, on the same page with this. This is just in your community. Oh, this is just in one hospital, not even in, in just the hospital, in one department of the hospital um, in, in Northland, uh, and these are the colleagues I work with. What, what are you um, asking Mr. Reti to do? Well, uh, we're asking him to understand that the smoke-free legislation, which was like all about reducing nicotine and cigarettes and reducing tobacco sales outlets from 6,000 to 600 and creating a, like a tobacco-free generation of kids that, that don't smoke, um, we... We need that law. Um, those laws were going to go into effect in six months. And again, over 20 years, they were going to save the lives of about 8,000 patients. And so if you're an emergency doctor, like all 18 of us are, um, you see the suffering that emphysema causes and that lung cancer causes. And you, if you have what's considered the biggest anti-cancer effort in New Zealand history, these smoke-free laws, if you have that, you have world-leading legislation um, you don't repeal it. You don't throw that away um, just for some short-term um, tax revenues. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's the message for Shane is like, please live up to the respect you want to have as a doctor um, and try to be a patient advocate. But you can't both be an advocate for big tobacco and smoking and for patients. It what, just doesn't work that way. What do you say to the argument that the government has put forward that uh, vaping will be their main cessation tool? They still want to reduce the number of people smoking, but just in a different way. 
vaping is is a separate issue, and it it doesn't have much to bear with the fact that 300,000 or more people in New Zealand are smoking. The new government is stopping work on investigating pumped hydro energy storage at Lake Onslow in Otago. Now, the project was floated as a solution to New Zealand's dry year problem. Now, that happens about every seven years when wind, solar and existing hydropower from dams and things aren't or are insufficient to maintain electricity supply. And we have to fill the gap by burning fossil fuels to create electricity. Now, the scheme would pump water from the nearby Clutha River into the lake, uh, then release it when other hydroelectric lakes become depleted. Uh, Government uh, estimates uh, have said it would cost New Zealanders $16 billion, around that, if it went ahead. Now, instead, the national-led government plans to scrap it and cut red tape and encourage more investment in wind, solar and geothermal energy projects. I spoke to Energy Minister Simeon Brown earlier this morning who told me the move to pull back uh, government involvement is about encouraging more investment from the private sector. We're pursuing a different type of policy from the prior government where we're saying actually what we need to be doing is providing the sector with the tools and the certainty to be able to invest in renewable energy. And so we are going, uh, working, starting work now on a new NPS on renewable energy to reduce the consent timeframes uh, for wind, for solar, for geothermal. We announced this as part of our campaign. It's the Electrify New Zealand policy. And we believe that will give the sector the tools to be able to make mm. the investments rather than the government getting involved, um, which actually has a chilling effect on the electricity market um, and delays those important uh, investments that we need to Do increase renewable energy production in New Zealand. Do you believe, though, that the market can provide for the dry year gap, which is what we're talking about here? You can have all the wind and solar in the world. If the, if the wind isn't blowing and there's no sun, you still have a gap in dry years when the lakes are low. What is going to fill that gap under your plan? Well, well yes, we can, and that's why we need an abundant supply of uh, renewable energy, and that's why we need to have the tools available for the sector to be able to make these investments. And the, and the sector, if they've got the right tools in place and the right incentives in place, uh, will be thinking about how they can meet uh, that demand when we do have a dry year. Uh, what we've got here now is a, is, a, is, a, is a... Well, we did have a policy by the prior government where they were proposing to spend up to $16 billion, which effectively sent a message to the sector to stop investing in renewable energy, which, uh, which is the wrong message. A couple of things there, though. I mean, you can, as I say, you can have all the wind and solar... To a lesser extent, geothermal, but you can have all the wind and solar in the world. You can have an abundance, but it still doesn't solve the problem if you have low lake levels and no wind blowing at the right time and no sun. You can still have a dry year. Well, that is, that is right, but we need to make sure that the market has the right incentives in place to address that problem rather than and the ha- government. But the only way to do that, right, is to burn fossil fuels through a, a some sort of generator as an emergency, well, right? Well, we have said that we do see uh, gas as being a transitionary fuel uh, to help with that problem, uh, and that is an important part of the market. That's one of the reasons why we are going to be repealing the ban on oil and gas exploration, because actually we do need to have the ability for the, the market to have other interventions as well. But ultimately what the Lake Onslow project was doing was basically saying to the market to stop investing in renewables because the government was going to spend $16 billion uh, and that meant we weren't getting the investment that we needed by the electricity sector. So 
We think this is a, the right approach. How do you deal with the price signals and overbuilding electricity and, and renewable energy? Because there is an argument that says there's already a lot of consented farms, wind farms, but there isn't an incentive for the sector to build that because it doesn't want to have a whole lot of overcapacity which isn't being used because that is money that it can't can't make return on. Well, that was one of the risks of Blake Onslow is that it would increase uh, significantly increase overcapacity and meant that the market was not prepared to invest. Um, So actually what we're saying here is the market should be making those investments and we're going to provide the conditions for them to to do that and the confidence to be able to do that. Uh, so we can meet those renewable targets. Just finally, the issue of uh, tripling the level of renewables that the the new global uh, pact, if you like, that's come out of COP28, we haven't signed up to that yet. Is it your intention that we would? Well, there's two, two elements to it. There's an overall consensus uh, measure being taken at COP, which we support around uh, tripling renewables globally. There's also a range of specific um, agreements which are being put forward by individual nations um, and we are currently receiving advice on those. We've only been in government for a week um, and so we need to take the time to, to take that advice but our, all of our policies as, as I've just explained are about substantially increasing renewable energy uh, and so we're certainly travelling in the same direction. The National Act New Zealand First Coalition is in and a number of things are out. The government revealed its 100-day plan last week. 49 items there to tick off, most of which uh, will cancel or roll back work taken under Labour. There is resistance, though. A group of emergency doctors from Northland this morning, for example, are telling the new government it's imperative the current smoke-free policies stay in place. And a potential massive hydropower project has also been scrapped, while an international summit shines a light on the urgent need for climate action. To talk us through all of this, we are joined now by Prime Minister Christopher Luxon. Kia ora, good morning. Kia ora, good morning, Ingrid. Okay, let's start with the uh, smoking issue we've heard from Aisha Verrill this morning, accusing you of misleading the public on that. Well, look, as I said yesterday, we got our numbers wrong, but the, the meta point and the macro point remains, which is that concentrating distribution in just 600 outlets across New Zealand will mean that there will be towns that have one or two outlets only. Uh, We do believe that that will become a massive magnet for crime. uh, And we also believe that it will drive more of the market into the black market as well. So, you know, I appreciate, you know, what I I want people to understand is we are deeply committed to lowering smoking rates in New Zealand. In fact, in the last decade, they have halved from 16% of people smoking daily down to 8% of people smoking daily. Uh, So we're now talking about, you know, working on that 8% and continuing to to push forward. Uh, So, so, but that doesn't mean that we agree with the government's approach, which it passed legislation just Okay, okay. I want to get back to this number because you were, I mean, you weren't even close with that number with the one outlet in Northland when in fact it was 35. How did you get that so wrong? Well, our team meant to say, you know, one outlet in town, in a town across, in a town across Northland. But you didn't say that. You said on a number of times, one outlet across the whole region of Northland. It became so entrenched, such folklore that even after that error was raised, Chris Bishop was in the media again on Sunday, still referring to that number. So even after there was an opportunity to correct it, that wasn't done. 
Yeah, so what we've done, what I've said is, look, we got that wrong. We've spoken to our team about making sure that we are fact-checking all of our information before we go off with statements and actually how they are supported. But the bigger point still were they not, Were they not fact-checked to start off with? Well, we want to make sure that we've got really robust processes in place. And when we get it wrong, we're going to call it and say we got it wrong. And um, you know, Well, after the media today. called you out on it. So uh, uh, did you have, or, you, you know... Um, robust procedures in place to start off with. Where did you even get that number from? The one? Well, we do, but as we've gone through a process of a new government coming in, uh, we just need to make sure that we are making sure all of our processes are robust and that we do fact-check everything correctly. When we get it wrong, we admit that we got it wrong, we have a conversation as a team, we take the learning from it, and then we move forward. But what I'm saying is the bigger macro point still remains. Limiting distribution to 600 stores across New Zealand will mean that there will be towns where there'll be one or two outlets only that can sell cigarettes. They will become a massive uh, target for crime. Uh, already dairies across this country uh, have, have experienced a huge amount of ram raids uh, of people going after cigarettes, and we need to make sure that that doesn't happen. We don't think that's a good thing. But if, when you say like a massive target for crime, that's another, that's another um, you know, a statement that gets rolled out. Where is the evidence for that? Did you fact-check that one? Well, what I just say to you is, you know, we have seen under the last Labor government a massive increase in retail crime. We've seen a massive increase in ram raids of dairies, uh, of people going after cigarettes in particular. Uh, it just is intuitive that you're actually going to limit the amount of distribution. You're going to have a big... So it's, ju- it's just, an, it's just what you reckon. It's just, when you say intuitive, it's just what you think. Well, no, it's why we opposed the legislation um, on the other when it was proposed and came through Parliament before the election, uh, as did other parties. Um, and so, you know, I appreciate that it's a different way of delivering the end, but we just don't buy it. And so, uh, we are deeply committed to lowering smoking rates in New Zealand. Don't get us wrong; we, we, smoking rates have have made tremendous progress over the last thirty years in New Zealand. The last decade alone, under both national and Labor governments, they've halved again. Uh, so we'll well health experts, though, have been very vocal slamming this idea of rolling back that law. They're the experts. They're the ones saying that you can make the changes. They're the one that has to sit in front of a person and tell them they've got lung cancer uh, and deal with someone with emphysema. They are pleading with you to, to not change that policy. What do you say to them? Well, that's why we're going to make sure that we continue to focus on lowering smoking rates in New Zealand. That's going to be a focus of our government. But it um, might be we'll... as fast. Well, no, but, but but I just say to you, we disagree with the approach that the government, um, with the Labour government, had for the election. But you've just admitted that it won't be as fast. No, I'm, I'm just saying to you, we're going to be focused on lowering smoking rates in our, in our government as well, as successive and previous governments have been, whether they've been national or Labour-led governments. Statistically, though, do you think your approach is going to have more people stopping smoking more quickly than what had been proposed, or what is currently the law? Well, what I want to underscore is that we're going. All we're doing is going to where things are today, and we'll continue our efforts to lower smoking across. Yes, and yes, no, I know what you're saying. I am actually limiting distribution in the way that it has because we think there's an unintended consequence, which has some serious implications for people that are doing it incredibly tough already, taking a beating on crime uh, for cigarettes already in this country. Okay, and no, and what I'm asking you is if if you have you've talked about a deep commitment to stopping people from coming from smoking, uh, Mm -hmm. you said there are other ways of doing it. You don't agree with how it's being done at the moment. I'm asking you if your plan, if you have evidence that that will stop as many people smoking as quickly as the status quo. Well, I'm not sure that the government, the previous Labor government's approach had a, had a guaranteed model of how it would reduce... Well, they had a model, so where's your alternative yeah. model? Yeah. 
but all I'm saying to you is we disagree with the principles or the approach of that. And that, that, Yes, that's and I'm asking like you if you can stack that up with evidence that your model will be better than their model. All I can tell you is we're going to continue our efforts as successive governments have to drive smoking rates down. Uh, the way we go about that will be different, um, but we'll continue education efforts. We'll continue. We, we increased excise tax just last week, for example, which we know has been effective at lowering smoking rates. We'll continue to encourage people to, to adopt vapes. At the same time, we want to make sure we have very serious consequences for selling vapes to under 18-year-olds. Uh, and we'll continue the process of good education that we've been taking over, over a number of governments. Are you frustrated that the smoking issue has taken up so much time, given it actually wasn't one of your policies that you campaigned well, again, on? Well, I'm actually proud of the fact that we launched our 100-day plan to actually get this country moving and get it turned yes, around. No, I'm asking if you're frustrated uh, that we're spending it, that this has taken up a lot of column inches, well, the smoking that, issue, but it wasn't a campaign. And I'm asking if you are frustrated by that as a, as, a, as a result of the coalition agreement, that this has taken up so much time and, and people's attention and, um, you know, raised a lot of anger from the health sector in particular. Well, ultimately, those are decisions, you know, if, if the media want to focus on that, that's perfectly reasonable and fine, and I need to answer those questions. But what I am interested in and what New Zealanders are interested in is how are we going to rebuild the economy, you know, restore law in order to deliver better public services. That's okay, what I, okay. I don't want to labour that point too much, but it is actually about, doctors so. and medical people who are bringing sure. this to, you know, are coming to the media with their concerns. It's not something sure. that's and been they're coming drummed to up. Us with concerns, obviously, about the abysmal wait list that this previous government had left behind as well, whether it's accessing cancer treatments, whether it's emergency wait times, whether it's access to first specialist uh, or, or surgery appointments as well. And so sure. those are the things that we're focused on improving healthcare. Likewise, on education, the fact that 40% of our Kids don't go to school regularly, and 50% of them aren't ready to go to high school with uh, with the knowledge that they need to have. You know, New Zealanders are interested in those things too. So I appreciate, you know, this may be an issue that the media wants to focus on, and that's perfectly within their purview to do so. But the reality is, we're focused on a fuller agenda, which is actually driving um, progress in New Zealand, getting this country turned around. Just finally, COP28 underway. Mm. Uh, how concerned are you about New Zealand's reputation in terms of what we're doing to combat climate change? Um, I'm not sure if you're aware we've been awarded fossil of the day at the COP summit. Uh, we've been obviously criticised by Pacific leaders as well, uh, especially around the opening up of oil and gas exploration. Uh, you know, how concerned are you about New Zealand's reputation? Not at all. We're very deeply committed to meeting our climate change goals and commitments that we, we laid up. It was a national-led government that signed New Zealand up to Paris in 2015. We're incredibly proud about that. The means by which we deliver those ends will be different from the previous government. Uh, we think there are different and better ways to do just that. So, you know, the reality for us is we are you know, deeply committed to making sure we deliver on our goals. Um, the means will be different. Are we going to sign up to the Renewable Energy Pledge at COP? Well, there's, there's actually two, there's quite a few things going on at COP. There's what's called the consensus statement, which is negotiated through the period of COP. Uh, we'd like the direction of travel around that being around renewable energies, fossil fuels. That all sounds quite reasonable, but we'll stay open to that and obviously go through that process when our minister arrives there later on in the week. So uh, the, is there, what about the pledge to treble the yeah. uh, renewable Yes, I mean, and then there's a series of pledges, and that's one of them, and uh, we're very open to that potentially as well. But in fairness, we're just a new government that's arrived, and we need to be able to make sure that we have all the right consultation with the port relevant portfolio ministers. And in that case, that is the energy minister. There are other pledges that involve an agriculture minister. 
uh, and also making sure the officials can make sure that when we make a commitment, we can deliver on those commitments and we can do what we say we're going to do. Uh, that's very important to us. But yes, I mean, very open to those, but we just need a little bit more time. The Climate Change Minister, Minister Watts, will actually uh, head to COP at the end of this week. Uh, that's the official time that he needs to be there. Uh, and any of those pledges, as we get the information coming through this week, uh, we can sign ourselves up to those through the course of the week. You've been listening to Morning Report Top Stories. 